This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. From the Fox News Podcast Network, I'm Dana Perino, and everything will be okay. Welcome back to another episode of Everything Will Be Okay. This week, I'm joined by New York Times bestselling author and professor whose latest book offers invaluable advice on conquering the second half of your life. Arthur Brooks is a New York Times bestselling author, professor, and musician. He truly does it all. In his latest book, From Strength to Strength, Arthur outlines how to grow your happiness 401k, encourages readers not to rush, but to intentionally prepare for their tomorrow. Arthur, it's great to have you on the Everything Will Be Okay podcast. That's great. Hi, Dana. And I hope everything is going to be okay. We're going to make everything okay. Well, you know what? I guess that's a good way to start. Uh, You have a great new book out. And it was, of course, number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the new book and if you conclude at the end that everything will be okay. Yeah, the the new book is called From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. And basically what the book is, is it's not for old people. It's for everybody who wants to not have to leave it up to chance. You know, people who want to be happier at 75 than they were at 25. And and this is basically a book that's your happiness 401k plan. It's the investments that you need to make that will make you happier all along the way and give you more than a fighting chance. It will give you an overwhelming likelihood of actually being happier when you're old than when you were very young. And so, yeah, you know, my, my conc- when I started off the research, I didn't know if this could be done. And by the end, I was completely sure based on all the people that I talked to, the the actually scientific research that I studied putting it all together as a social scientist. I mean, I'm like, I'm a, I'm a guy who teaches this stuff and I am so convinced of this that it's completely changed the way that I live and everything can be more all right than it is right now. I'm <laughs> sure of it. So one of the things that I talk about in everything will be okay and have interviewed the author of is um, a book called the defining decade. And yeah. it's about, do you know this book? I've heard of it. I don't, yes. I haven't read it. So it's about, how you must invest in yourself in your 20s in order for the rest of your life to be turn out well. <laughs> um, huh. That the idea is you can't just um, uh, think that everything is going to be fine magically when you turn 32. Yeah. That there's a lot of uh, laying the groundwork that you have to do. And so I'm wondering about how you might think of what you just described as your 401k plan for the rest of your life. I love that. So is it important in your 20s and as you're starting your career and maybe that first career or the second career transition where you are uh, maybe becoming the boss, taking on more responsibility and then making other bigger life choices? Do you have to invest in yourself thinking about the second half of your life in that early part of your career? So to begin with, um, the earlier you start investing in yourself and in your happiness and the love in your life, the better off you're going to be. But I found very clearly that it is never too late. 
if you, you know, the people who are listening to us who had kind of a misbegotten 20s, you know, I hear this all the time. I teach at the Harvard Business School, these, you know, super put together, absolutely ambitious people, young people, very different than I was. I mean, I didn't finish college till I was 30. I was a professional musician all the way through my 20s. I'm doing something completely different than I was doing. My values are different. My politics are different than I was when I was in my 20s. I, I don't regret my 20s because I learned a lot. I'm, you know, I got married and you know, I'm still married uh, 30 years later. And so a lot of really beautiful things happened. But I have to say that that you would have looked at me and said, boy, oh boy, he's making a lot of decisions that don't look like they're going to last uh, stand the stand the test of time. And in fact, they didn't. But everything can turn out OK, even if your investment plan doesn't start early enough. That's one of the clear mm-hmm. things that I found. So how do you find that? Tell us about your research methodology. Well, so the research as a social scientist, I'm actually I've done a lot of sort of the bench science of human behavior. Uh, this book is about 20 percent neuroscience, about 40 percent philosophy and theology and spirituality. And the rest is really this, uh, you know, social psychology and economics and, and, and putting it all together with histories of really, you know, people who are important that we all know of, like Charles Darwin and Johann Sebastian Bach, but a lot of ordinary people that were talking to me off the record, real strivers. These are people who wanted to do a lot with their lives. And and a lot of them actually, quite frankly, are not very happy. And one of the key things that I found over the course of this research is that there's a striver's curse. You know, a lot of people who are going to be listening to your podcast are people who are trying to invest so they can be unbelievably successful, hoping that that is the right strategy to also be really happy. And it turns out that's not necessarily the case. On the contrary, you find that people who invest the most early on in just their pure worldly success are often struggling the most at the end of their lives, which is why you need not just a 401k plan for your money and your success, but also one for your happiness as well. So that's the methodology. You look at the history, you look at the philosophy, you look at the science, and then you or- and then you interview a lot of ordinary people and apply it to their lives and give them a lot of takeaways that they can use. Is there a region of the world or in your research that you find that there are people are more happy than others? Yeah, there's a, the United Nations has a World Happiness Index every year um, that that ranks countries by happiness, and it's all nonsense. Uh, and the reason they do that, one has to imagine, it's because they 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 really like the outcome, which is always that Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, you know, Iceland and Finland are the happiest countries in the world, the the Northern European social democracies. Um, and it's kind of a poke in the eye to the United States, I think. Uh, you know, the more capitalist uh, countries. The trouble is, you can't compare countries on the basis of people simply saying how happy they are at any given time. You can compare people themselves on their answers or, or even people within countries, but different countries have different languages and different cultures and different definitions of how they would rank their own happiness. So we don't really know. Um, you know, it's interesting that Denmark is always the number one happiest country in the world. And, you know, I've gone there. I've actually, I shot a documentary film about happiness, partly in Denmark. And, and I don't want to live there. My great my grandparents actually immigrated from Denmark to the United States because they wanted to be here. They wanted the American style of, you know, build your life, be a life startup entrepreneur, you know, pursue your success, have adventure. That's how they define happiness. And so we all have to find our happiness, define it in a particular way and pursue it. That's the point. One of the reasons I wrote Everything Will Be Okay is that as I mentored younger people, I was just struck by how much anxiety they feel for their futures yeah. uh, or their or their current state of being and, and for their future. And um, almost like you can't see the forest for the trees, like they're right. so deep in it. Or the other way I describe it is if you've ever waited tables, there's a phrase called in the weeds. That's when yeah. you, maybe you get 
seven tables seated all at once and you can't even think straight. But you know what you need to do, so you just keep doing it. You bring the drinks and you bring the food, but you're so crazed that you feel like you don't have a handle on things. And I felt like I kept seeing that over and over again. And I, when I look back, I do think that I worried most of my 20s away. Yeah. And I was like in a hurry. I was in yeah. a really big hurry. So when I was writing the book for them, but I also encourage people who are the parents of uh, millennials or Gen Z that they're worried about or that they're concerned about the anxiety that's consuming their young people. Um, because as you get older, some of those worries you know, slip away. You have different worries, but you learn how to manage them better. And I wonder if you have any advice for people who might be parents or grandparents or uncles, aunts, or brothers and sisters of people who are really worried and yeah. not able to seize upon their own happiness. Yeah. So worry is something that I write and think and talk about an awful lot because, you know, I teach MBA students and, you know, they're super high performing and they're very ambitious, but they're deeply afraid of failure. They're such high performers that they don't really have very much experience failing, quite frankly. And and they're also just anxious about the world is what the world is going to bring. And a lot of that, quite frankly, is is the fault of baby boomers and Gen Xers, people my age who, you know, have have instilled a whole lot of fear into their kids with the safetyism, not letting them actually experience their lives with the ultra structured childhood that's all about achievement and all about social comparison and then you lard on social media on top of that where they're always looking at what everybody else is doing i mean nobody else posts their social media accounts you know just got yelled at by my spouse or my kid just failed math brutal i mean they they you know they put stuff that's really good so you're, you're comparing a, a kind of a neurotic version of yourself inside your own head with the wonderful high achieving versions of other people that are being posted on social media and the result is that it's it's a bad set of comparisons and people walking around with a lot of fear so i give different kinds of advice to young people that i do to people who are in, in a position to lead young people for, for young people, they have to face their fears. And by the way, Dana, the number one fear that I hear um, as a Harvard professor is that they're afraid of falling in love. They're afraid what? of relationships. Yeah, totally. Oh my and gosh. My favorite piece of advice in my book is choosing to be loved is not a career limiting decision. Yeah. Well, and not wow. only that, it's not, a, it's not a life limiting decision. No. <laughs> what I find is that, that right now, but I'm looking at the data and, and 30% uh, lower 30 percentage point, lower likelihood right now, people in their twenties saying that they're in love compared to when you and I were in our twenties and the eighties and nineties. I mean, it is a dramatically, and the re, number one reason is that love and fear are opposites, you know, St. John, the apostle wrote that perfect love drives out fear. You know, this is an ancient Chinese understanding of fear as well, that it's the opposite of love. And so, People who say they don't have enough love in their lives is because they're being constrained by the fear of failure, the fear of rejection, the, or the fear, the fear of, of the the heartache if it doesn't work out. Yeah, totally. Wow. And you know, this is the most entrepreneurial thing you can do in your life is falling in love and getting married. Um, it's kind of like a startup business, but but scarier and a bigger deal. And, and so, you know, when I talk to my students who are very entrepreneurial, you know, they're willing to put ten million dollars of other people's capital at risk for their big business <laughs> idea, but they're not willing to go out on a date and get their heart stomped on potentially. Wow. And I say, look, you know, the average entrepreneur has three point eight. Um, business failures before they're for success, you need at least 3.8 heartbreaks before you're actually going to find love. And that means you got to get out there and you got to do it. You got to, you got to take a risk with your heart. The number one piece of advice I wind up giving young people today is take more risk with your heart. That's the only way for you to actually confront fear. I'm really blown away by that and upset by it because what are the long-term implications 
for your happiness if you don't find somebody to spend your life with? That's not good. It's really, it's not good. Now there's, there's a lot, I have a, there's a huge number of, of longitudinal data. Um, we have this wonderful study called the Harvard study of adult development that looks at people over an 84 year period. It's like a crystal ball into what they did is their twenties in their twenties to see if they're going to be happy in their eighties. And there's a lot of it, you know, diet, exercise, smoking, drinking, all that stuff. Um, and there's some, also a lot of emotional things, but the number one thing is that happiness is love. The number one way for it. And this is the big point that I make in my book that strivers and high achievers, they have a tendency to become kind of loners, pretty lonely. Um, they have a lot of deal friends, but not very many real friends. And everybody knows the difference between those two. And they don't invest enough in their, in their romantic relationships because they're so worried about the striving. And a big part of that is a smoke screen for not dealing with their own fear of rejection. Hmm. And so that's a key thing that we all, we, we need to, you know, we need to be out there. Now, people who don't get married, it doesn't mean they're not going to be happy. That's not true either, but you need close, intimate, real relationships with people. So you find that women in particular can be just as happy with close friendships, but they got to have real close friendships. No joke, no, not just deal friends, not just work friends. Your work friends are not going to be at your funeral. It's, it's, you know, the people that you're closest to. So that there's different ways to get it, not just romance, but you have to be serious about it because these are the most important investments you'll ever make. How did COVID affect all of that? It was it was ugly, mm. uh, quite frankly. It was like a natural experiment for me. I'm like a bench scientist for human happiness. And, you know, I was looking at this. And so just as a uh, just kind of a primer on the neuroscience of loneliness, you know, a lot of people told me during COVID, during these lockdowns that, you know, they, they couldn't sleep, even though, you know, they were you know basically living in their bedrooms, um, that they were restless. They felt they felt physically uncomfortable that had to do with a lack of a, a hormone, actually a neuropeptide in the brain called oxytocin, which is the neuropeptide of love. It's the human connection that we get from eye contact and touch with other people. And when you don't get enough of it, you will be intensely uncomfortable. And that's what a lot of people were suffering and suffering actually physical maladies as a result of this. Um, many people even still today are more lonely than they realize. Loneliness is something that can creep up on you. And I'll give you one statistic that really sums this up. In ordinary times, about 9% of Americans are exhibiting symptoms of clinical depression, which is a serious problem that needs medical attention. Right now, it's 28% of Americans are exhibiting symptoms of clinical depression. And this is after the lockdowns. We are like newsflash. We are not locked down anymore. You don't even have to wear, as of today, when we're taping this, at least, you don't even have to wear a mask on a plane. But I just anymore. saw Shannon Bream is at the airport right now. She said that 90% of people are wearing the masks. Yeah, they still they're still doing that. And a lot of it is just because a lot of people have been become much more afraid. They've become very accustomed to lockdowns. There's a wow. very interesting thing about loneliness. Loneliness impairs your executive function. Your executive function is the ability of your prefrontal cortex. That's the big meaty part of your brain that makes you kind of have conscious decisions about what's right for you and the right thing to do. That's healthy to do. It impairs your ability to do what you need to do. So when people are lonely, they do the opposite of what they need to do. They tend to like cocoon with a comfy blanket on the couch and some haagen and watch Netflix alone when they feel miserable, when they feel sad and lonely. The right thing to do is you need sunshine in your eyes. You need sunshine on your skin. You need to see people and you need to exercise. In other words, go outside. If it's sunny, call a friend, ride your bike. That's what you need to do when you're, when you're lonely and people are doing the opposite of that. And still people are in very suboptimal behavioral patterns um, as a result of the, just the catastrophic 
catastrophic problems that we've had because of COVID lockdowns. And then uh, what impact does social media have or not? One of the things I talk about is if you find that it's draining your energy, then you need to read, do something different. And if yeah. it's not adding to your life, if it's not a, if it's, if it's not a net plus or a value add, that your career is not going to suffer if you hop off social media. Yeah, I know. And it's going to be have a different kind of impact on your career, Dana, and my career because we're in public, right? But even us, we can do less than we do. I mean, the thing that a lot of people who are not in public life, they don't understand is that you can actually get inside a celebrity's head by writing a mean tweet. And that's because we're too obsessed with this. Social media has had an extremely deleterious consequence on mental health in America today. The, the, the cover story in the magazine I write for The Atlantic is by a, a good friend of mine, Jonathan Haidt at New York University, about how the last 10 years have been uniquely stupid in American life. And I think you and I can attest. To I that. love that. I love that piece. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's a great piece. And a lot of it is the fact that social media is making us really dumb. When it comes to happiness, however, it's a different problem. Here's the there are two rules for social media if you want it to make you happier and not more miserable. Number one is that if it's a substitute for your in-person relationships, it's a problem and making you worse. It should only only ever be a compliment to your human relationships. In other words, you want to keep up with your kids. You want to keep up with your friends who are not around you. You want, and you just basically want to, you know, figure out where you're going to meet up, whatever it happens to be, use social media for that, but never, never, never use it as an excuse to not see other people or as a substitute for actual in-person human relationships that will leave you depressed, sad, and lonely. Number two is all of your social media use across all platforms should not sum to more than 60 minutes a day. That's very important that you not pass that. That's I mean, again, we could say in economics, you know, your results may vary or whatever, but it doesn't vary that much. You will literally get lonelier because of your oxytocin deficit. Social media is the junk food of social life. It's like, it's like you're hungry, so you eat nothing but burgers and fries and milkshakes. Yep. Too many calories, not enough nutrients. That's social media. That's so. That's a great way to put it. And I think that everyone listening will recognize it in themselves or certainly in the people they care about, their children. Um, yeah. You write about how faith rises with age. And I'm assuming yeah. that's all faiths. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, you find that people and even even non-traditional faiths and, and general spirituality are just an interest in, in life philosophy. And the reason has to do with the fact that we start to see religion is not the same as superstition as we get older. We see it as an answer to the big questions that you thought were going to be answered by life and aren't. Because life is really messy and there's so many trailing questions about everything. You know, what's it all about? What does it mean? Why am I here you know, what am I looking for? And, and a lot of people find that just ordinary life with, you know, television and house, house payments and your car and traffic and, you know, your friendships, they don't give you that what you're seeking. And so they turn to something bigger. Furthermore, you find that a lot of people realize that just focusing on their daily lives is just so boring. You know, we're compulsively <laughs> my job, my car, my money, my friends, my house, my blah, blah, blah. So it's just tedious. And you need relief. You need peace. You need perspective. And the best way to do that is to zoom out on the eternal verities of life. Now, that might be I mean, I'm a I'm a Roman Catholic. It's the, literally the most important thing in my life. Other people have different ways of accomplishing this, at least for the happiness part. I'm not going to say who's right. Obviously, I think I am. But it's but for the happiness part, you can get in lots of different ways. Maybe a meditation practice, maybe an hour long walk every day in the woods. Maybe it's listening to the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. You know, maybe it's actually going back to the, the faith of your youth or reading the stoic philosophers. You got to find your own way to do it, but you must do it. 
So you write something about making turning your weaknesses into strength. One of the mm. things I wrote about was flipping your energy. I think it's. I feel like this is almost the same thing, which is um, instead of feeling anxious all the time, can you turn that into energy that is kinetic, like something mm. that's moving you forward? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, this is a key thing to keep in mind is a lot of people are sort of psychological hedonists. And that's actually a term in my field. And psychological hedonists, they spend a lot of their energy simply trying to not be unhappy. And that's a big mistake. A full life has ups and downs. Now, I'm not saying that people should go look for suffering, but suffering will find you. You don't have to go looking for it. The key thing is not how do I avoid it, but what do I learn from it? And, and one of the things that you learn from your suffering is that it's a very sacred thing. You find your sense of meaning and purpose from your resiliency and from the bad times, not just the good times. But furthermore, your weakness is your great strength in connecting you to other people. You know, when you say, I mean, there's a, you know, there's a one way that people will admire you, Dana, but not admire, but not connect to you is if you talk about what you do for a living because you do a very unusual thing for a living. You're extremely mm-hmm. well known. You're at the top of your profession. That doesn't connect you to, to other people. People say, ah, Dana Perino, she's awesome. But I can't relate to that mm-hmm. is what people will say. So how do you relate to other people? It's with the same feet of clay that you have that everybody else has. You say, I feel lonely too. You know, I feel sad too. You know, I feel all the same things. And, and that's those weaknesses are not to be hidden. They're, they're a, a way for you to become connected with other people. And that's been a, just a a really important thing that I learned over the course of this research in the book, which is that I need to be using my weaknesses and be a lot more open with my my weaknesses than with other people. People often assume, you know, I'm a professor at Harvard University that everything has gone right for me academically. Mm-hmm. No, I, I got kicked out of college when I was mm-hmm. 19 years old. I spent 10 years on, you know, working on the road as a musician. My parents called it my gap decade and it was not funny to them, you know, and there's, there's a lot of different ways that you can, you can turn your life around. You can make things better, but you can't explain that to people and they can't understand it or believe you unless you've had the same kind of hardships that they have. I think that's one of the reasons the five has been so successful over the years. So we're in our 11th year, um, about to have our 11th anniversary. And it was only supposed to be a five week show. So in some ways, I'm not going to say I didn't take it seriously, but I kind of was like, well, just I didn't think it was going to be a career and change my life. Um, So we would just ask, we were just so open about everything, especially Greg Gutfeld and me. And (laughs) I think, you know, you'll get asked a question, what's something that people don't know about you? I'm like, "Uh, I've been on the five for 11 years. I really can't think of something. Of course, there will be a thing here or there, but being open and vulnerable in a public setting like that has actually brought us, I think, closer to our fans. Yeah, no, it's funny because people, they hide a lot of stuff and they, they lump together two things that shouldn't be lumped together and the things that they hide. Number one is the same kind of embarrassing truths about life that everybody has, but, but they're not, there's, they're nothing to be ashamed of. You just don't want to talk about it. And the other thing are things that you should really be ashamed of. If you're dishonest, for example, if you hurt other people, if you, you know, you've done something that's really, that's bad or illegal, for example, and people, they, they lump together their, you know, their depression or their anxiety or their addiction with, you know, some crime they've committed. And that's just completely wrong. You know, the truth of the matter is that we're, we're all struggling. We're all, you know, I have students who come into my office all the time and they shut the door and they say, professor, I'm a hot mess. And I didn't, you know, that's a funny expression. It turns out it's from the 19th century. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a totally millennial thing. It's a, 
It's from that. It was actually coined in the late 19th century to say that the public is a hot mess or a person is a hot mess. And even with Gone with the Wind, Scarlett O'Hara uses it when she's talking about Melanie or, you know, yeah, it's funny. So, but anyway, they'll say I'm a hot mess and they, 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 they close the door because they think it's so shameful. And I say like, well, welcome to the club. You know, everybody's a hot mess. The truth is that you, you, you're the only one who sees all the messy stuff inside your own head. And then you look at everybody else and they look just fine. But the truth is that everybody's just doing the best that they possibly can. And you need to share it with other people and laugh about it and make jokes about it and not worry about it one single bit. I mean, welcome to the hot mess club. That's like humanity. <laughs> we'll be right back with more of this interview after this. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I wanted to move to the last question. And I said at the top, I was going to ask you a question about myself um, yeah. because I have a big birthday coming up in May. Do you really? I do. It's a, it's a zero. It's yeah, a no zero. kidding. Your kid, your kid. Dana, your yeah, kid. yeah. Um, but what's interesting <laughs> is that all those things that you heard about your whole life, like when you get to 50 or like when you thought about being 50, like, wow, I'll be so old. Yeah. And it's interesting now. Okay, so I'm about there and I certainly see some physical changes and then um, some, I think some wisdom changes and some anxiety that starts to go away uh, that you stop caring about some things. But it's funny. I, I guess I'm maybe conditioned to think that I should have more anxiety about that number than I actually do. But then I think, well, maybe I actually do have a lot of anxiety about it, which is why I keep thinking about it. I am going to do something fun. Um, a, a group of friends and Peter and I are, are going to go to Spain. Cool. I know that you love Spain. Um, and that's a place that I really want to go and be um, just free for a, for a few days. Mm-hmm. And I think about your book, and I, maybe I don't even really have a question, but when you talk about a mid, turning a midlife transition from crisis to opportunity, I don't necessarily feel like I'm in crisis, but I might be on the edge. <laughs> it's on your mind. It's on your mind, I know. I mean, it's like in, in, in two and a half years, I'm going to have a birthday with a zero after it. It's, the, it's, a, it's a decade you know, later yep. than yours. Yeah. And, and it's the funny thing. It's like, I feel physically better than when I was 27 years mm-hmm. old. I'm 57 and I, and I feel better than when I was 27. You know, I'm, I'm in better shape. I'm in better emotional shape. I'm much happier than I was, but I have to recognize that the time horizon is a little bit different. I'm less likely to, to do things I don't like that are an investment for 40 years from now, because it would be idiotic for me to be, you know, planning career moves for when I'm 97 at this particular. So you think about things a little bit differently and that you, you regret that because you feel like you're less of a striver, you're less ambitious, but the truth is that it's kind of a relief. And so the key thing for everybody to think about in these transitions, as we're starting to get older, is that we have particular strengths and that's what we get defined. And the strength that I talk about in the book, the book is called From Strength to Strength. And, you know, that's an ancient Jewish blessing, Michael El Chael in Hebrew. That, I'm a Catholic, so that's like all I know. And But it's from the 84th Psalm. That's this, may you go from strength to strength. And as we go from strength to strength, as we from younger to older, that's moving 
moving from striver to instructor, moving from the kind of person who's, you know, the, the, you know, the trained soul killer, the ninja, the cowboy to somebody who really has a lot of wisdom, has a lot of ability to teach. And so the coming years, I mean, you're not going to, you're probably not going to make a radical career move, Dana. I mean, you're going to keep doing what you're doing because you like Unless it. Unless I get really fired. Yeah, I know. It's like, that's, that's the problem <laughs> with media, right? <laughs> but, or canceled. You know, I, I, yeah, I know. I teach at Harvard. So imagine how I feel. Yeah. So it's a, <laughs> it's like, yeah, be careful. Uh, academia is funny. It's hard. But the key thing is to, is to think differently about what you're doing, doing it in a different way, going from being the sole star to being the actual teacher, you know, cultivating the next generation of talent, but also dedicating yourself to teaching people more about things that really matter. Isn't and, that and just it, the greatest reward? Oh my goodness. It really I is. Feel, actually, it's why I wanted to write the book. It's why I think that you teach and yep. you write, you write so well about the issues that are really like deeply on people's minds. Yeah. And you know, if I can, the reason that I left my job as a CEO, I was a, the president of a think tank in Washington, DC for a long time. The reason I, I left that job in my mid fifties and I came back to academia to write, speak and teach is because I knew that this thing, the second curve, it's called your crystallized intelligence and your, you're uniquely good at it in your fifties and sixties and seventies. You know, that's when you have to dedicate yourself to it. And look, I did the research, at least I should, you know, eat my own cooking as it were. <laughs> I literally left my job as a CEO to become a professor again, because I saw that I was going to be much better at that than what I was doing. Now you as a, you know, somebody who's in the public eye doing talking to big audiences about ideas, you're going to find yourself more attracted in the coming years, in the coming decade to helping people to be their best selves. Mm -hmm. And you're really gifted at it, which is why you already wrote. It's going to be OK. It's going to be OK. Um, it's going to be OK. You know what bothers <laughs> me about um, maybe not just corporate America, but that there, I feel like there is a real push against, I want to say older Americans, but say like Americans in their uh, 60s. Yeah. Who, especially during COVID, got pushed out. Maybe they were the first to be laid off and not rehired. And now, if, you, if, you're, if you're looking for a job at that age, the algorithms and all of these websites are like kicking you off because you, you don't, they figure out that, well, he's over 60 or she's over uh, 70 right. or whatever it might be. But right. a lot of people have a lot to give. And I feel that yeah. a lot of these businesses are missing out on a ton of really good talent. You're completely right. And this is one of the biggest problems, not that, that, that companies have, but the American economy has. About 30 years ago, we turned over the keys to the American economy to bureaucrats and engineers. And I don't say that pejoratively. I'm not casting aspersions. I have a lot of admiration for people in public service and, and, and as you were in public service and for engineers who are making all these eye popping things, technological advancements. But you can't say that what we need is a youth hustle culture where everything is a technological problem to be solved. Look, our problems are the things that are written on our hearts and people who understand that the best are older people, people who've lived a lot, who've been in the school of hard knocks. If we want a better economy and a better country, quite frankly, we need every company in America to take the opportunity to have at least one person over 70 in the C-suite on the marketing teams and on the product teams. I wow, look at that's a great point. Yeah. And social media has gone from the most respected part of the American economy to near the bottom in 15 years. And the reason for that is because they made all the dumb errors that young people make and old people don't. We need more crystallized intelligence in every company 
all over our society. Now, maybe, you know, 80s for politicians is too high, but 60s and 70s for executives and for leaders is not too high. We need more of that, not less. I could not agree with you more. Um, actually, I could just agree with you all day. Uh, I love <laughs> I love you. I love your book, From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life, and really for all of life. It's a book for people of all ages. I love the point that you made about investing in your happiness as a 401k plan. So smart. Yeah, thanks, Dana. Congratulations, Arthur. I appreciate it. It's great to be with you. I hope to see you in person one of these days. Yes, come see us in New York. We miss you. I love that. Me too. Take care. Bye-bye. I loved talking to Arthur about this, and it's given me a lot to think about as I approach a milestone of my own. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. I'm Dana Perino. Everything will be okay. Listen to the all-new Brett Baer podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Baer favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to Fox News podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.